The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Reverend Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes. Beth, today we're going to meet Dr. Jamie Mitchell, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of Michigan, who's going to talk about her research into doctor-patient communication and how it can impact the health of African Americans. Yes, John, Dr. Mitchell was one of the keynote speakers at the Ruth Frost Parker Center's annual symposium. The theme this year was at the intersection of race and age. We really wanted to capture some of her research in a podcast. She has an interesting story about how this came to be the focus of her research. I understand your experiences with your father's health got you started in your research area. My dad, many years ago, was having some health challenges right as I was starting my doctoral program. It was during the recession, so 2007 going into eight, it was early in the recession, and I had a lot of family members who had health issues but had lost health insurance. And so I am the young researcher in the family. I'm looking up, also a social worker right now by, by then, and so I'm looking up programs, I'm looking up free resources, and I'm thinking to myself, there's got to be more out there than kind of what I'm seeing. And so a lot of times when my dad was ill, I would be kind of helping him out with doctor's appointments and trying to look up resources for him. And so that was kind of my initial just kind of foray into like, I'm not seeing enough out here about men's health and specifically black men's health. One of your areas of focus has been on prostate cancer among black men. So I did some research and I said, man, there are so many like what we call gaps in the science, holes in our understanding in this area. We've got star-studded concerts for breast cancer research. Nobody's talking about prostate cancer. A lot of men actually uh, develop prostate cancer before they pass away, and many of those men don't even know they have it because it's a, it tends to be a slower-growing cancer and a disease that folks have in older age. But black men were being diagnosed with more aggressive disease and being diagnosed in their 40s and 50s when they really should have much more time. And so I said, I'm not seeing a lot of science on this, especially in the behavioral realm. Why is it that men aren't going in to get checked? Surely they're having symptoms. Why is it that the government isn't funding in these areas? There's so much need here and I also have family members who fit this demographic who could really benefit from advancements in this area and what we know so I want to understand cancer disparities that are specific to black men. That got me interested in health communication and specifically in doctor-patient communication and the role that the family plays in that. So you spent two years researching doctor-patient relationships with a focus on black men. I found an amazing unit at Carmanos, some people say Carmanos, Cancer Institute in Detroit. It's a comprehensive cancer center in Detroit. They had a unit on uh, communication oncology, a whole group of researchers who studied doctor-patient communication. And I began writing and publishing in that area around how black men and their family members communicate with providers and perhaps what we can do better. A big part of the research being done in that unit around communication oncology was this medical interaction research archive that they had, MIRA. And this archive was about, 
oh my goodness, 900 videos that they had acquired of doctors talking with patients. And so I spent a whole summer really watching those videos in a lab and trying to observe what's happening in the dynamic between doctors and patients, what's going well, and try to rate the quality of that communication. One of those studies involved looking at older black men who were there for a prostate cancer diagnosis. And what I observed was that the men who brought someone with them, particularly a woman with them, were getting a lot more questions asked and answered than men who came alone. And a lot of the, these were with the same doctor. So even if I had 60 men, maybe there were only 12 or 13 doctors. So you were able to say, you know, this isn't a difference of you just having a much more engaging physician than that person. This is the same doctor with two different patients, one with a companion and one who comes alone. And the ones who come with that extra support who can ask questions, but they're also filling in some gaps around symptoms and the timing of things and things that the patient isn't saying and the doctor can't glean that information if nobody says it and then they can't make the same types of decisions about treatment or include the patient in planning in the same way as if they had that full information and in many of the instances that companion was filling in those gaps and was walking out of there with a lot more information for that patient or that family to work with. That could be a big factor in why black men are having poor outcomes with prostate cancer. What do you think are some of the other factors? Some of that is an issue around healthcare access. So men who tend not to have good health insurance or employer-based health insurance, or even time off, paid time off to go to the doctor, may have some symptoms that they're worried about and not have the opportunities, the access to get those symptoms checked out. And what is that? result in a cancer that is more aggressive by the time you do check it out, it's further along, it's further developed than if you had caught it right at the beginning. And unfortunately, that tends to coincide with sometimes being African-American in terms of being somewhat underinsured or uninsured or working in some occupations that don't allow for the paid time off or for the type of medical benefits that would be required. Seeing specialists, for example, are not included in everyone's insurance plan, things like that. So we see that delayed diagnosis more often, and we see that more aggressive disease oftentimes in tandem with that. I understand that African Americans generally have poor health outcomes. For example, I recently heard that an African American woman with a PhD has a higher infant mortality rate than a white woman with a high school degree. How can that be? The National Institutes of Health years ago used to put out a video series on this where they looked essentially at the experience of discrimination and the role that that played on essentially wearing down the kind of biological defenses of women of color generally and black women specifically prematurely. And some of the examples in the video and that we see in the science is the experience of going into a store and being assumed to be a shoplifter or being looked at suspiciously. The experience of working at a job and being really highly qualified, but people making an explicit or implicit assumption that you only got that job because of of affirmative action or because of your race. So there's a stress that comes along with being seen a certain way in society that really wears on our internal defenses. And so it increases inflammation, it increases stress. And there's a great hypothesis that's really been empirically tested called weathering. And I believe the researcher is Arlene Geronimus who coined the term weathering. And weathering is this hypothesis that she has tested that shows that there is like biological aging, a more rapid biological aging that happens amongst people who experience everyday discrimination. 
And it isn't something that happens all at once in the moment, but it happens over time. And so somebody who may have other privileges in life that might afford them good health, like additional education or higher income, access to healthier food, they still have this internal experience that is shortening their life, essentially, that maybe white mothers who may not have that same benefit of education or income, but don't have to walk through the world feeling differently or feeling as if they are being judged for their race or being stereotyped in some way. And so they don't experience that same internal aging, essentially, on your different systems. And what we know specifically in the area of maternal health with black women, and we've seen this even in really well-known names like Serena Williams, for example, published an op-ed a few years back as a new mom and talked about not being listened to. And so there's this sense that when black women are going into a hospital to give birth, that their pain may not be taken as seriously, even though we know childbirth is incredibly painful, that complications like preeclampsia and other really dangerous conditions that can crop up around that time are not being monitored as closely, and that can result in premature mortality for black women in a way that you may not see it manifest in white women. And also that providers may just be generally more aggressive and less patient-centered with black women than they are with white women, and that that also manifests in adverse health outcomes that make women distrustful. It creates a traumatic experience that makes people not want to engage in healthcare later on. So there are a lot of disparities there that I think people are just now, with more prominent voices, really bringing out into the open and advocating for, but that people have been documenting for many years. What was Serena Williams' experience? She had blood clots, and she had had this condition for years before she became a mom, and really, of course, a world-class athlete knew her body to be able to say, this is the test that I need. I've had this condition before, and I feel the same symptoms, and I want to make sure you all catch it, and they didn't listen. She really had to advocate. So, of course, people are thinking when they read that story, if one of the most recognizable names in the United States in terms of sports and all of this is not being listened to in healthcare, what chance do I have? So that was a really powerful moment of visibility, I think, for some of the disparities that we've been talking about. In this age of COVID vaccination rates, where whether or not you trust the medical field or medical research can have a critical impact on your health, how does that apply in the Black community? Some people think that that goes back to the stories and the knowledge of the history of research abuses like the Tuskegee syphilis uh, study in the U.S., and that is partially true. But what we now know is that what's much more powerful in terms of making people distrustful of research is actually their current experience in healthcare. So if they've gone to the doctor in the last year or two and they felt like they didn't get good treatment, that makes them distrustful of the entire medical establishment, not just that one doctor. So how has this history impacted the reluctance of many African-Americans to take the vaccine? With the vaccine, what we have been seeing over the last 18 months is that those efforts have come pretty late. So when we were talking about the vaccine trials a year ago and getting diverse representation in testing the vaccines, that was really important because a fear of experimentation is a common fear in the amongst African Americans, also Native Americans, other communities as well, who've had that historical trauma. And so you have to really do some work to get folks to believe that one, what you're doing has good motives, there's good intention behind it, that there are good protections in place 
to protect them from harm. And so I know that some of the HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, partnered with industry at that time to kind of lend their credibility and their face to those efforts because also if you produce a vaccine that doesn't have diverse representation in the trials, then folks are not gonna trust the outcome of that, no matter how efficacious it is. And so it was really, really important for the vaccine makers in partnership with the government and whomever else was uh, working on it to ensure that they had diverse samples to be able to show communities of color in particular that they were included in that process and that the vaccine works for them and also isn't going to harm them. Tell me about your recent research in Flint, Michigan, a community that has been traumatized by lead contamination in their water system. I have a, a research project going right now. It's a community-based project to promote research participation in older adults, Black older adults. This is a community that has really experienced collective trauma very recently, we're not talking about Tuskegee here, that also a lot of folks came in and wanted to research what was happening there, but they didn't stick around. They ran after that, and that left a lot of trust issues with the community. When you're trying to support communities that have been under-recognized, under-resourced in particular previously, whether it's diabetes, whether it's COVID, in terms of getting vaccinations, I think what's difficult is overcoming this trust barrier that we have. And so if you want to come in and do something that will probably benefit the community, you still have to overcome the fact that people are rightfully mistrustful from very recent bad experiences. So what steps did you take to overcome those barriers in Flint? In my case, I began working with some professors who were born and raised in Flint, who were really well entrenched in the local churches, who had a long history of doing community-based work, community-based public health, whose face was very recognizable, and I got them on board. And I asked them, I said, can you introduce me to some of the people that you know, and also can you help me develop an advisory board of really trusted other community members, faith leaders, and leaders of the local aging organizations and community centers who can then become kind of like just a foundation for doing something new, but a foundation that's built on existing relationships and existing faces and existing trust. And it's now, there's co-ownerships. They're on the board, so they are also co-owners of something new that's happening. We are much more likely to get traction in this community. As a researcher, you argue that it is important to do research that focuses only on the African-American community. For many years, we would and we collectively in academia, people who study African-American health would submit papers, research, really high quality, rigorous research on the health of black families and black communities to academic journals. And we would all get the same reply. We know this because we talk to each other. We would all get the same reply, which is where is the white reference sample? And so you're telling me about these disparities, but you're not telling me about them in relation to white people. And so, you know, we thought about it and we said, we think we have a case for being allowed to study black people on their own and not necessarily how their health presents in relation to white people. One argument is that white health is not necessarily the model of health and should not necessarily be treated as the default. And so how is your health in relation to this default group? But also that the black communities, and they are very diverse, black communities, black individuals have unique histories, circumstances, 
health needs, health barriers that deserve consideration in their own right. To really understand that community on their own, provide supports and evidence and science to, to move those communities forward, and that we shouldn't have to do that from a deficit point of view, from a model of how they are in relation to white populations. And so after many years of making that case, we've made a little bit of headway and now can send that reply and we don't usually get much pushback anymore. But I will say that we do still occasionally get asked for that group. And I think it's not it's nothing malicious. It is because in academia in particular, we've just been trained to think about science in a way that says, you can't prove that something exists without proving it in the context of a place where it doesn't exist. So you are making the point that in some cases, making a comparison to a white control group doesn't necessarily get the data you need. Exactly. Some of that cuts across all groups. And men may not talk as openly as women about their health, but there may be specific stigmas in particular cultural, racial, ethnic groups that need to be understood in order for health providers or public health, those people who put on public health campaigns to get checked out for different things to understand those mechanisms. And if you're only looking at communication about health in relation to white men and black men, you're going to miss a lot of the nuance about why it is that a particular group is not communicating either amongst each other within families or even with their health providers, for example. If we don't study that within that community, we're missing a key opportunity to attune our interventions and our communication to a cultural norm that is specific within a community and that may be completely missed when comparing that community to a white reference group. This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative, and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Delmar Fellow Eric Johnson.